0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 62 and we're heading to momentous times in the region between Delagoa Bay and where Durban in KwaZulu-Natal is today. We're hustling towards the year 1807. If you remember last episode, we heard that the young Shaka had been growing up in Amazulu Chief Senzanga Corner's house, but by 1802, he'd fled by the early 1800s, only about 2,000 people were part of the Amazulu, and they lived between the upper Imflatuzi and white Imflatuzi rivers. Remember that Shaka, who was Senzanga illegitimate son, was showing signs of being a troublemaker. At least, that's the view of oral historians, and by now the future Amazulu king was in his late teens. Senzanga planned to kill him, but Shaka got wind of the plan and fled to Joby Kakai, was a well-known causey of the Mteto. While he languished at Jobri's kraal, Shaka knew that the accepted route to power for all men was honour in battle. This increased attractiveness to women, the standing in society, and as a child who'd lived a constant life of what was seen as his mother's dishonour, he was motivated to set the record straight. He'd been living with his mother Nandi in the Mlatusi Valley, where the Langeni people resided, close to where I lived as a child, by the way, and up the river from Richards Bay. Here, growing up fatherless, traditional storytellers recount how Shaka was the victim of humiliation and cruel treatment by the Langeni children. The rivalry between the Amam Tetua and the Amandwandwe under Zwide at the same time was notorious. Then, to make matters worse, the countryside was riven by a great famine in 1802 known as the Maitlantule, Shaka appears to have been separated from his mother around then when he was taken to the Tetwa people further north at the home of his mother's aunt. But word had travelled and Shaka was bullied by the Amantetwa boys as well. It wasn't all one-sided. Shaka was growing into a tall man, incredibly strong, and he maintained because he was Senzangakona's son, albeit illegitimate, he was of royal blood. While all of this developed... Jobi Kakae was already a fairly old man by the first years of the 19th century, and his heirs were growing impatient. According to the stories handed down to us, Tana, who was the eldest son, decided that he would assassinate the old man and roped in his younger brother, Gorongwana, to help. But before they could carry out the evil plan, Jobi got wind of the intentions and ordered a pre-emptive strike. A band of warriors entered Tana's kraal and stabbed him to death in his sleep, although Gorongwana managed to make his escape, but he'd been hit in the back with a barbed assegai. For the next few days, Gorongwana hid in the bush and was tended by his sister. He managed to survive, eventually striking out upcountry and finding refuge amongst the Amatlubi who lived in the Drakensberg foothills. It was here that Gorongwana dropped his name and began calling himself Dingiswayo, the Troubled One. Dingiswayo was about to receive good news. Joby died. But his problem now was that when Joby died in 1807, we're not entirely sure of the exact year, Dingiswayo took over the reins. First, though, Dingiswayo had to kill his other brother, Mawawi, who was his father's designated inkosana and heir as the son of Joby's chief wife. Shaka recognized a good leader when he saw one and immediately supported Dingiswayo's coup and the murder of Mawawi. Traditional storytellers say it was Dingeswayo who was to eventually bestow Shaka's new name on him, Isichaka Kasichayeke, who beats but is not beaten. Up to now, he'd been called Shaka with a C, a bastard, so the twist was more suited to his real character, which was highly aggressive, a dangerous soldier who was to become one of the most feared men of southern Africa. As with all things in this series, nothing happens in a vacuum. While Shaka and Dingiswayo were starting out their expansion plans, expeditions from the Cape passed through the area. Trading in ivory and cattle with Delagoa Bay, though, was slowing. This is one of the reasons why historians are grappling with the exact cause of the creation of the Amazulu. One of the theories was that the Delagoa Bay trade in cattle, ivory, and perhaps slaves caused an increase in conflict in the area between the Mplatuzi and the White Mfaluzi. We know this is probably not the main reason right at this moment in South African history because shipping logs show that the Portuguese trade dwindled by the late 18th century and early 19th. So too did slavery dwindle from the north of Delagoa Bay. American whaling ships were putting into the bay around now, along with English trading ships passing by and seeking supplies. But the level of commerce, it's believed, was not at the volume to cause the radical social changes taking place between the Pongola and the Chigela Rivers and of course, leading from the paramount seas of the Amam Tetwa, the Amandwandwe, to the kingdom of Amazulu. By the early 19th century, the consolidating chiefdoms were at each other's throats in the area between Delagoa Bay and the Chigela River to the south, then bounded to the west by the Drakensberg Mountains and to the east by the Indian Ocean. Earlier, the largest chiefdom here was the Imbo in the 16th century, but it had fragmented in the early 18th. One of the splinter groups of this large chieftain were the Amandwandwe living south of the Pongola River. Then they were confronted by the Tetwa to their south who were between the White Umfalosi and the Amplatuzi rivers. By the time Shaka was serving Jobe, cattle raiding had increased to a new level of fierceness. The Amandwandwe and other more aggressive groups based between the Black Umfalosi in the north and the Imzanyati and Tugela rivers in the south began to slug it out. These were the Amachlubi and the Makwabi paramountsies of the Klubi chiefdom. Each was trying to control grazing pastures through summer and winter and trying to gather more members or adherents. And so the chiefdoms began deploying the Amabuto against each other and Shaka rose through the ranks of the Amamtitwa. These age-based regiments, as you know, were a pretty old idea. They had been established well before he was even born. What Shaka did later was he tightened the organisation of the Amazulu Amabutu under his sole command and refined their tactics. Even the use of the long-throwing spear and the short-stabbing spears were an innovation that predated Shaka. Later historians would describe all of these to him, which are wrong. While he was perfecting his military tactics, and more about these in the series, other things were happening around the region. In 1808, One of the more expensive expeditions with the most ambitious agenda set out from Cape Town for the Portuguese fort of Delagoa Bay in southern Mozambique. Under the leadership of Dr. Andrew Cowan of the 83rd Regiment, the expedition crossed the Orange River safely and after a short sojourn at the Clarvata mission station, they set off for the Kuruman River where Malebongwe, the king of the Batlaping, had his capital. You've heard about the visit of Collins already. Two previous expeditions from the Cape had visited the Butlaping prior to this time, but once past them, the Cowan expedition, with approximately another 1,000 kilometers between it and its destination, would be in what, from the colonial perspective, was virgin territory. The expedition failed to arrive at Delagoa Bay, and except for a letter written on Christmas Eve and sent from the Malopo River near modern-day Mafeking, He was never heard from again. In the two centuries since his disappearance, the fate of Cowan and his men has been the subject of debate and speculation, which, due to a lack of concrete evidence, has been necessarily inconclusive. Why mention Cowan? Well, some historians have suggested that Cowan may have been killed by Dingiswayo, coming across him as he descended from the Zululand Highlands in the area of the White Umphalozzi down towards the coastal plains. You see, Amazulu tradition speaks of Dingiswayo meeting such a man. We don't know his name through the oral historians, but he was riding a horse, he was white, and he was armed with a musket. The oral storytellers speak of Dingiswayo being treated for a knee wound by this unknown European. They also say that the traveler died a short while afterwards of a fever, which is also highly likely as the lowlands of Zululand then were malaria infested. Whatever the truth, the stories reveal how these sets of individual lives intersected. Neither side was completely unaffected, obviously, by these meetings. One thing that made a big impression on Dingaswaya was the traveller's horse. He'd never seen one. The other was his musket. Southeastern Africa was a unique fusion of two types of society that was going to have consequences for military organisation. The paramountcies and kingdoms of the region were hierarchical and centralizing around the nuclear, which was the king or the chiefs. And so, back to this concept of age-based regiments. Youths didn't go through circumcision as a portal to adulthood. They banded together every few years by their ruler as military cadets. When enough of roughly the same age were available, they'd spend their days as herd boys and working the fields as well as practicing fighting skills. After a few years of this cadet course, so to speak, their ruler would then form them into an age-graded regiment called an Ibuto, and these were given a distinctive name, kind of like military regiments like 3-2 battalion or one parachute regiment. On marriage, members of the Ibuto assumed a headring or iskoto. This was a circlet of tendons and fibres sewn into the hair with cattle sinews, then coated with beeswax or gum and regularly greased and polished like boots or the buttons on a regimental uniform or a badge on a military beret. And this was the ruler's main instrument of power as well as coercion. By the time of Dingezwayo and Shaka, the Ibuto were all foot soldiers. There were no horses. That's because the tsetse flower was prevalent in the forested subtropical regions towards the coast throughout sub-Saharan Africa. Horses never made the move in ancient times from North Africa to South Africa. It was only when the Dutch settlers arrived in 1652 that horses began to dominate the felt because there were no tsetse further south in the Western Cape. The and Amazulu warriors, and those of other African societies, fought against each other with various forms of spears, the principal weapon. Javelins were thrown from a distance, like the Romans, and then heavier spears were used for close quarter fighting. Warriors also carried the knobkeri, a heavy club, and even the battle axe. Bows and arrows were used by the San, but never the Tetra or the Amazulu. Ox-hard shields came in various designs, as they did amongst the Tswana, the Basutu and the Amakosa. Some were wing-shaped, others were hourglass-shaped or apron-shaped, and of course, the most famous of all, oval. The latter was the shield preferred by Amazulu, because it covered the body. Soon, Shaka the Exile was earning a great military reputation among the Amamtetwa. He wore the esit of a married man while serving Dingiswayo, and he apparently took several wives. There is even one bit of oral tradition that he fathered a son called Zibi But this has been disputed over the years. There is no doubt that he enjoyed Dingiswayo's patronage and as a mark of his favour, the Amamtetwa chief placed shaka under the special care of his commander-in-chief Ingomani Kamkomboli who then became the young man's father figure and mentor. Sharka's rise to the upper ranks of the Amam Tetwa took place under the watchful eyes of Dingiswayo, and coincided with this increasingly deadly struggle for regional supremacy with the Amandwandwe. These people were now pushing south across the Mkuzi River under an extremely able leader called Zwidi Kalanga. Smaller chiefdoms took flight, some headed west over the Drakensberg Mountains, some headed south over the Tugela River as the warfare escalated. This was going to cause some upheaval further afield as smaller chiefdoms were dislodged by these movements. It was a ripple effect, if you like. Now, I'm going to spend some time in future podcasts talking about this. It has a name, which is the Infotrani or Difotrani. I'll explain why the idea is so controversial and has had historians steamed up for more than a 100 years. This is because the Infotrani was used at times by colonial officials to seize land they said had been emptied because of this ripple effect. If anything is central to modern South Africa's land issues, this is one of them. As you'll also hear, there's no doubt whatsoever that people were being dislodged because their own oral tradition says so. Entire groups which exist in South Africa today have the Empathione as their core storyline and at the same time, You know, this story is ancient, global, and modern, unfortunately. Just think about Pharaoh, Egypt, and the Israelites for a start. Being thrown out of land because of violence is an unfortunate human reality. Like in the Ukraine, the DRC, Sudan, Yemen, etc., etc., etc. Eventually, many of these smaller chiefdoms began to fight back against the Amandwandwe, against Zweedie. Dingizwaya was trying to co-opt the smaller chieftains constantly to help him keep Zwida away and to provide more men for his regiments. Soon, Shaka's father's people, the Zulu and the Amam Tetwa, were going to collide. Right now, Shaka was not a Zulu. He was an Amam Tetwa. But his father, Senzanga Kona, who almost killed him in 1802, was still the chief of the Amazulu. Zulu. The small chieftain was strategically placed on the northeastern borders of Dingiswayo's reach, around the valley of the white Mfulozi. It was logical that Dingiswayo would want to manage Zulu affairs more directly, and so he hatched a plan. Why not send Shaka back to his father's people, the Amazulu, to usurp the old man Senzangakona and take over as chief? Then he'd secure his flank against Zwede, who was pushing inexorably southwards. This meant Senzanga had to be killed or chased off. Shaka was quite happy with that plan, according to Amazulu Oral traditional storytellers. He was to return to his father, and tradition had it that he deployed some kind of magical occult-like hold over the old man who did eventually die. But that was still a few years away in our tale in 1860, We are still hovering around the first decade of the 19th century, and a great deal was going on back along the Cape frontiers. So let's head back to the Zoofeld. In 1809, Ingrica took the egregious misstep that would change the balance of power amongst the amatrosa chieftains of the frontier, and the story goes like this. Ingrica was overcome by desire for Tutula, his uncle and Tlambe's favourite wife. A woman famed for her beauty, this was not going to end well. Some say that Nguika was merely trying to force Nchlambe to abandon the western reaches of the Zürfeld by stealing his most desired wife, but whatever the real motive, it was a rash move. Other histories say that what started all of this was that one of Nguika's concubines had gone to visit her family living in the Zürfeld, and she was detained by one of Nchlambe's sons first. Titula's family, just by chance, lived near Enrica's great place in the Amatola Mountains. When she came to visit them, he abducted her in a kind of tit-for-tat theft of women. But Enrica's action shocked all Amatoso who heard the news. A lesser chief called Siko duly reminded everyone that in terms of Amatoso's social law, this was incest and provoked Inflambe to declare war on his nephew. The people's revulsion was genuine. The Amatoso have a horror of incest, which is a recurring factor in the Bardic poetry tradition. Entlambe and, and Hinsa, the new Kraleka chief, mobilized and sent a joint force to fight Enrika. So Entlambe was too old and infirm to lead the fight himself, and he gave generalship to two of his sons, and they inflicted a crushing defeat on Enrika. And the victory was even sweeter, because his own brother, Mnaluza, had misguidedly joined Enrika shortly before the battle. Engweka fled to the mountains with a handful of followers. His kraals were destroyed and his herds driven off by the victors. Yeah, Engweka and his survivors fell on hard times. Even his children began to starve. The other Zurfeld chiefs didn't automatically line up behind Inshambe, however. They feared his greed and his ego. He wasn't a likable person, nor trustworthy, so most of the Zurfeld leadership decided they'd renew their support of Engweka although they stopped sending him tributes. They were merely making the point that they didn't think Inshlambe should be allowed to be king of the Amararabe Amakosa. Inshlambe was forced to recognize Inghika as a senior among the Amararabe, and Inghika in turn renounced his claims of control over the Amararabe Amakosa living west of the fish. Still, the reality was that Inghika was now almost destitute and the Amakosa were now even more destabilized so he immediately petitioned the British to uphold his status and to send soldiers to help him wipe out his uncle once and for all, but they refused. Remember, the British were bending over backwards to reduce their involvement in Amakosa political ructions. They were only really interested in Cape Town as a refueling station for their fleets. This would change, of course, but that was later. Nguika ended up begging clothes and even brandy from the British and for cattle, to help him recover from his war. And Llambe, on the other hand, now had 3,000 warriors under his command. This power grab destabilized the Zulfelt still further. Tungwa of the Amakonu Kwebe was beginning to be overshadowed. He had controlled the Zulfelt to some extent through the last two decades and now his authority was ebbing away. So Tungwa made the momentous decision to move further down the coast and settled near the Khamtuus River, west of Algoa Bay. That's just north of the modern town of Jeffreys Bay. By doing so, he avoided being hemmed in by Inflambe, but now he was hemmed in by the colonists, the Trekboers. Both Inflambe and Kungwe knew that their position in the Zutfeld depended on maintaining good relations with the British authority and the settlers. Watching all of this was that American, who was actually a British loyalist, Jacob Kyler, the Jutenheing and he wasn't happy about all these movements going on. The Trekboers began to complain of the danger of having the Amakunukwebe living that far west. Things were moving towards an escalating level of violence once more in both Zululand and the Zurfeld. For the British, the situation was even more dangerous than when they first arrived in 1795 and had to finish off the Third Frontier War, when Nlambe and all the Amararabe were still living east of the Fish River. They were about to confront a shifting power base amongst the Amatosa they didn't understand. The British had drawn a rigid boundary line between the escarpment and the sea along the course of the Fish River, which flowed east and sometimes west. Unfortunately, the Fish River was now regarded by the Zufeld Amatkosa as the fixed frontier between themselves and Inghika. They had even left a wide area below the west bank of the fish as a defensive belt between themselves and the river, a kind of social DMZ. Beyond Nguika country, further east and up the coast, was another fixed line, the Kai River, east of which the country is occupied by Hinsa, paramount chief of all the Amatosa and his T'aleka people. That area today we call the Transkai, if you're wondering about all these geographical pointers. We must end. Next episode, we'll hear about Jacob Kyler's relationship with Anders Stockenström and what Lord Kaladin was going to do about the Amatosa living west of the Fish River. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there. My handle is at Des Until next, salagatli. (音楽) Music